Uh, I feel very privileged to be here this morning. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things in doing what I do in being a Bible teacher that you just never know when God is going to teach you something new. You know, if you've had me for TM103, and, and I know that many of you have, you know that uh, at some point along the way, we are going to talk about the Gospel of John. I'm sure that you just remember every detail of that lecture. And that at one point, we're going to talk about the Samaritan woman and the faith that she showed in overcoming some huge obstacles. And I was teaching this passage uh, last semester, actually, and as of working through the passage and talking about it, all of a sudden I realized that the issue wasn't what she had to overcome. The issue was who was standing right in front of her. Now, it's not that she didn't have to overcome a lot. She had to overcome a massive amount. After all, uh, as the passage makes clear, and by the fact, that, and the fact that we know the story this way, she is a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman. And she's talking to Jesus. And that's just not something that should normally happen. From the Jewish perspective, she's got two strikes against her. She is a Samaritan and she's a woman. Uh, a few years after this, a, a prominent rabbi is going to write that it is forbidden to give a woman any kind of a greeting. You just weren't supposed to talk to them in a public setting. There were even cautions, you know, you're not supposed to do that with your wife, let alone with somebody else's wife. And so she is in a society where any interaction with men is going to be suspect and she is going to be thought to be the one at fault. She's also a Samaritan. Another rabbi says, uh, again, a, a little bit later of a period, the women of Samaria are deemed unclean as menstruants from the cradle. There is no cleanness possible for a Samaritan woman in Jesus' eyes or in Jewish eyes, I should say, not in Jesus' eyes. In Jewish eyes, there is no possible cleanness from the time she's a baby. And we have a story here where Jesus is talking to her. And she's amazed by this. This is not supposed to happen. And it's happening at a time of day that it's kind of not supposed to happen. He's talking to a woman and a Samaritan. Now, Instead of me reading the passage, we're actually going to watch uh, it play out here. And what I want you to watch as this is going on, I want you to watch the woman's reaction to Jesus and how she's going to start with, I think, charitably skepticism and how her facial expression is going to change. So if we go ahead and uh, we'll see the passage develop this way. In Samaria, he came to a town named Sychar which was not far from the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the trip, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water. 
Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. If you only knew what God gives, and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him. And he would give you a life-giving water. Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. He and his children and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Those who drink this water will get thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring, which will provide them with life-giving water and give them eternal life. Sir, give me that water. Then I will never be thirsty again. Nor will I have to come here to draw water. Go and call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. You are right when you say you don't have a husband. You have been married to five men and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told me the truth. I see you are a prophet, sir. My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain. But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. Believe me, woman. The time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship. But we Jews know whom we worship because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming. And is already here. When by the power of God's Spirit, people will worship the Father as he really is. Offering him the true worship that he wants. God is Spirit. And only by the power of his Spirit can people worship him as he really is. I know that the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he will tell us everything. I am he. I who am talking with you. Okay, so everybody that uh, has had me for TM103 goes, I've seen that video before. And yes, you have. Uh, That's what I use when we're talking about this passage. And the reason that I use it is because you can see on, I think that the the actor just portrays the Samaritan woman masterfully so that you can see her response to the things that Jesus is doing from this inappropriate beginning to all of a sudden he kind of exposes her, but doesn't leave it there. All we're going to do this morning, there there's, isn't anything super complex in what I'm going to do. We're simply going to kind of walk through the dialogue a little bit because there are a couple things in there that I think are essential for us in understanding what Jesus does in our lives. And you can see it right away here in that he is not bound by whatever society tells us is our role. He is at this, they've gone on a long journey and uh, he is now at this well and he is hot and he is thirsty. It's the middle of the day. And all of a sudden this woman comes up and he asks her, give me a drink. And she's amazed by that. Just by that simple question. I mean, and there's there's a couple reasons for this. One is that we've already talked about that the Samaritans 
and the Jews did not get along. It had even devolved into violence at one point. There is a temple uh, you could still find the ruins of that is, is kind of right near this area. And the Jews had destroyed it just about a couple hundred years prior because they didn't think that it was appropriate to worship God outside of Jerusalem. And you see that actually reflected in the passage as it moves on. But the other thing is, is, is that it's noon. It's noon and here she is at the well. You don't come to the well in the middle of the day in a hot desert area. You do that at the morning, you do that in the evening. But she is there by herself in the middle of the day. What is she doing there? Well, I think that's one that we'll, we'll let hang there for a second. But when she speaks, to, or when he speaks to her, she recognizes right away, this is not appropriate. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus' answer is completely confusing. If you knew, he says, the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And if I'm that Samaritan woman, there are a couple things that I would be thinking at that point. I would be thinking, well, then why did you ask me to get you water? And then the next thing would be exactly what she says. You don't even have a bucket. Where are you gonna get that living water? Are you greater than our forefather Jacob who actually made this well? Well, you'll know from class, uh, probably in most of your classes that, at, at TM 103, that this is an example of John using irony where the character doesn't realize that she is actually speaking the truth even though she doesn't realize it. And that's exactly the case here. She's asking, are you greater than Jacob? Well, yeah, it's Jesus. He's way greater than Jacob. But all she's doing is looking and saying, you're going to, you just asked me for water and now you're saying that you could give me better water, living water. And in her mind, she's hearing fresh water, not stagnant water like you would get in a pond where all the animals have been and, everything else. This is flowing, fresh, pure, living water. That's what she's thinking. And she's thinking, he doesn't even have a bucket. And I should ask him. And he tells her, everyone who drinks this water, the water she's getting from the well, will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty the water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing into eternal life. And she hears that. And the only thing that she can do is put it in her context. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. She is entirely bound by her circumstances. And, you know, we're all that way. We are bound by our circumstances. And sometimes we cannot see clearly. But before I talk about that again for a second, I, I want you to notice something here. She asked. He just said a couple of verses prior, if you knew, you would ask. 
And what's amazing here is that she doesn't understand yet. She doesn't know, and she still asks. And I think that there is something essential for us to understand about how God relates to us. We don't have to have it all figured out. His very presence causes her to ask the right question, even when she doesn't understand what the question is or what the answer is going to be. And so she says, as uh, just masterfully played in the video, give me this water so that I will not have to keep coming here. Her life consists of hard chores day after day after day. Her job every day is to go and carry water back for the family to use at eight pounds a gallon. I remember that from my high school physics days. Eight pounds a gallon, that's heavy. Every single day, every single day. I don't know how much she carried, but I guarantee you that was hard work. And this is all she has to look forward to. I mean, we're here in a setting where, where we are dreaming. What is God gonna do with us? What is our future going to be? And we're planning. She doesn't have any of this. She is a woman of Samaria. Her job is to get water every day. And he just said something that will make her life easier. Give me this water so that I don't have to come here anymore. Well, Jesus looks at her and moves the whole thing to another level. And he asks a very probing question. And it's, there are actually two commands in this whole passage. And one was, give me a drink, and here's the other. Go, call your husband, and come back. Well, on the one hand, that seems to be a little more appropriate. He's not supposed to be talking to her. But on the other hand, her situation is a little bit different. And so she just responds, I don't have a husband. And Jesus responds to her and says, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. You know, in, in our culture, this actually doesn't seem so exceptional. But in their culture, it could do nothing but provoke shame. And I think that that is one of the keys in seeing how, again, the, act, the actor portrayed the Samaritan woman as ashamed. And I want us to be clear here. We don't have any idea what caused her to have been married five times and now not be married. There's nothing there to insinuate that, that she was a bad woman and, and made bad choices and she gets what she deserved and therefore she is ashamed. We don't have any of that. And actually, none of that is, is important to Jesus either. Neither is the fact that she is currently living with a man, unheard of in that culture. But what choice did she have? What was she going to do? Was she going to go get a job at the, at the local grocery store or something like that? She did not have a choice. She needed the sustenance that being in some kind of a family relationship would bring her.
But we don't get any more detail than that. And Jesus responds again. I think I read it first already. You are right in saying, I have no, in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So here's something very important to keep in mind with this passage as well. He just exposed her and he drops it. It doesn't come up again. Because what he is doing is reorienting the situation. He is reorienting the situation so that she looks at who is in front of him. And all of a sudden she realizes that something is different, that something is going on here. And so she tests him a little further. Sir, I I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you say that the place where people ought to worship is in Jerusalem. She's trying to discover, is this guy simply more than a magician or maybe somebody that's been following me around? Is he a fortune teller? Or could he be what the Samaritans called the Tahib, the one who restores, the one who teaches, the Messiah? So she probes him a little bit. Where should we worship Jews say in Jerusalem, Samaritans say on Mount Gerizim, where should it be? Oh, and by the way, you guys destroyed Mount Gerizim. Woman, he says, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is. when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who who worship him must worship him in truth. Now, there's a lot there, and I don't have the time or the inclination in this kind of a setting to unpack all of that. I just want us to note one thing, that he is emphasizing that the time for worship that is not bound by a geographical location is here. And in case that wasn't clear to John's readers, earlier, he had already cleansed the temple and pronounced himself the center of worship. So he's telling her, look, you don't, have, you don't really understand what has been going on and what God is doing. And part of that reason is that, that the Samaritans, you might recall from TM 103, see how we're bringing everything back? All that stuff, you can pull out your notes. Uh, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible. So they had no understanding of the promise to David or some of those other things or all the things that Isaiah said about the Messiah. They didn't understand all of that. All that they understood was that the Messiah was gonna be someone like Moses who was going to explain everything to them. And that's how she responds after this. You know, he says, uh, the uh, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And she responds and she says, I know that Messiah is, who is called Christ is coming. When he comes, He will proclaim everything to us. And then he answers. I am he who is speaking to you. I am he who is speaking to you. 
He is the fulfillment of her people's hope. He is the fulfillment of the Jewish hopes. He is the fulfillment of our hope. The problem is, is that it took her a while and it takes us a while to recognize when he is right in front of us. Well, just then it says that the the disciples came and they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said to, uh, but no one said, what do you want or, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back into the city. And she said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything that I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And the Samaritans left the city and were on their way to him. Now, this passage is going to continue uh, with uh, just uh, some profound teaching by Jesus. But I want us to focus right here. And I want us to focus on the Samaritan woman. Because I want, to see, uh, I want us to see some of the things that she did. That as I looked at this and I realized how earthbound I am in my life. And I understand that. I mean, this, it, what we see around us, is, it's, it's what we experience. It's what we have. It's what we see. And so it is easy for us to be so caught up in this. And one of the things that I see here is that we can't be afraid to ask. For whatever reason, unbelief, shame, Whatever it is. The woman asks. She doesn't have the right motivation. She doesn't know who this is standing in front of her. In her eyes, for all she knows, this man could be trying to proposition her for something. Give me this water. She's asking for the very thing that she needs. The very thing that is going to change her life. And she doesn't know what he's asking, or she's asking for. And what that tells me is to ask. I'll be honest with you, I've, uh, I've resisted that kind of thing over my life because I figure God's gonna do what God's gonna do and I don't need to ask him, he's just gonna do it. And this passage is telling me something else. Not because the woman's life suddenly became easier. That is not the case here. She is not transported out of a society that thinks she's a nobody because she's a Samaritan and a Jew and giving a fulfilling career so that she can go on and fulfill whatever God has for her. That does not happen. Her situation is the same at the end of the story as it was at the beginning with one difference. She has met Jesus. So ask, give me this water. And at the same time, be prepared for grace. It took Jesus exposing her shame, whether it was through her actions or actions that were thrust upon her. It took him exposing her shame in order for her to look up and see who was in front of her. See who she was talking to. And then he drops it. Jesus is not interested in this passage in browbeating the woman into some kind of submission so that she goes back and she gets her life right and all that kind of, he doesn't do any of that. He does none of that. 
He makes no demands upon her. Even the whole issue of what he asked her to do, go get your husband and bring him back here. He doesn't say, well, so go get your live-in boyfriend. Go get your baby daddy. He doesn't say any of that. She still doesn't quite know what's going on. But one of the things that we can take from this is when we have asked and when we have been exposed is that we can expect God's presence. He told her, I am he who is speaking to you. She didn't expect that. She had no idea when she showed up at the wrong time of day because she's trying to avoid everything that's going on. She has no idea what is about to happen. We have this story to tell us this is the way God does things. And he doesn't deal in shadows and he cuts through the noise. I'm convinced that, that one of the reasons that our society yells and screams so much is that we are full of shame. Whether through our own actions or things that have been done to us, we are full of shame and we don't know how to get past it. And we feel like if we just yell loud enough, it'll go away. This is where Jesus meets us. This is where he meets her. He brings up the issue so that she can start to see who is right in front of her and then he drops it and concludes with, I am he who is speaking to you. And she is so amazed at this point that all that hard work is left sitting at the well. She runs back. She's different. And she goes back and she gets them and they come. And eventually, if we had gone through the entire passage, we would have seen at the end that they tell the woman, you know, we came out to sea because of what you said, but now that we have seen him, we believe as well. She is changed and we should expect to be changed. The presence of God in our lives will change us. We do not need to live burdened by that shame. That is why he died and rose again. And that is what we hang on to. Not a past of our own bad choices and others' bad choices, but the fact that Jesus lived, died, was raised from the dead for our sins. Those of you that just had me for BCD must have heard me say that 40 times a day. Because that is the essence of the Christian message. And that is the essence of what changes us. That Jesus died for our sins and was raised. His presence changes us. And when we've been changed, we proclaim. And again, she doesn't understand any of this, but the first thing that she does, she leaves the water, she goes back to the city and says, come with me. Let's go see. This could be the Messiah. And you can see there, she still doesn't quite understand. But she's different. We don't have to have this all figured out. We just have to recognize that Jesus is right before us. 
Ask. Expect grace. Expect his presence. Expect to be changed. And proclaim what he has done. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe at how you work. And we see in this example a a woman whose name we never learn. A woman in a society that despised women. Of an ethnicity that was just as despised. And yet 2,000 years later, your presence in her life changes us as well. May we be bold enough, brave enough to ask, to be prepared for grace, to expect your presence, to expect to be changed, and Lord, give us the courage to proclaim what you have done.